When I was a kid, I wanted nothing more than to move out of Detroit. Move somewhere like New York and make it big and then come home in all my glory. But years became decades. I can't even believe we're talking two decades. And you know how it is. I got a great job. I got married and had kids. And I never made it back. And now, as I watch how COVID-19 ravages Detroit and my new hometown of Los Angeles, I'm also aware that these decisions leave me vulnerable. I don't have the superpowers of connection and community. You know the kind, where your neighbors not only know you, they also look out for you. These are the superpowers our grandparents and great-grandparents had, the kind of connection that helped us survive. So the question we're taking on on this episode of Truth Be Told is really, how do we fight an enemy like COVID-19 when we can't physically be together in the way that got us through tough times in the past? Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. told. Dear Truth Be Told. I really need your help. I need your help. I need your help. We've all been spending a lot of time on Zoom and FaceTime and phone calls, haven't we? Well, before we get to our wise one this week, I wanted to get on another Zoom call, but this time with some really good friends of mine, Kelly Englund Poindexter, who now lives in Houston, and Sarah Davis, my old high school doubles tennis partner, who lives in Austin. Do you guys miss home? Do you miss Detroit? I miss Detroit that we knew when we were growing up. I Mm. absolutely miss my family and... Uh, I do get extremely nostalgic when I go back home, but it's not for Detroit today. It's like for the Detroit that we knew and what Detroit could possibly be. I do see like little sparks of like potential. So when I see that, I'm like, oh, wow, that's like what Detroit could be maybe another 10 years. So I, I, you know, if you can miss something that's in the future, that's, that's how I feel. Well, that's kind of profound, like miss what, what Detroit is soon to become. But I do feel really emotional about what's happening with COVID-19 and just the amount of people who are dying from it, the amount of people who are sick, the six degrees of separation. It's an overwhelming tragedy. I mean, it's almost like just in the last few months, Tanya, you know, we've suffered, our family suffered loss personally, and it's non-related to COVID as far as we know. But it's almost like you have to compartmentalize your emotions and your feelings like you have to on a daily basis you know you have to like just to survive this period and angst about what's going on it's palpable (sighs) it's just difficult it's just a difficult time I had a really good friend who was in the hospital um, and on a ventilator for 45 days and it was like every single day like I was either you know trying to reach out to her her mom or husband you know, to find out what was going on. And I didn't realize how much stress that that was causing me. Like it was causing me a lot of anxiety. And it was interesting that her mom called me one day and she just, she started praying with me. Now this is her daughter that's in the Mm. hospital. And I think she could tell, you know, and I was like, I got to pull it together. Like I can't allow, you know, (laughs) all this anxiety to take over me. Cause kind of like what you said, Sarah, it's like, I have to be able to, you know, take care of my family, take care of my kids. How is your friend? Well, the good news is, is that she is off the ventilator. Now she's able to talk and form words and eat. 
and everything. That's so good so. to hear. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I feel a tremendous amount of fear, number one, and also guilt. And I'm going to try not to cry about it. My dream had always been like, I'll go away and establish myself and then come back to Detroit. And that just didn't happen. I just went away and I never came back. And a big part of that is because of opportunity, opportunity in other places. So it's Mm -hmm. a twofold thing for me me feeling a guilt for not being a part of the solution in Detroit. And all of it is exacerbated by this COVID-19 crisis that we're dealing with. Oh, that's heavy. (laughs) That is, oh, that's so heavy. It is heavy. And I know I'm not the only one feeling this way. Our wise one, Sarah M. Broom, feels it about her hometown of New Orleans, Louisiana. Sarah is the author of The Yellow House, a memoir that won the 2019 National Book Award for nonfiction. It's also been released in paperback. New Orleans East, to be exact, is where Sarah grew up, and its claim to fame was that it was once a promising neighborhood that was home to a major NASA plant, and then later neglected. Sarah, welcome to Truth Be Told. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk a little bit about your work. So, mm-hmm. um, You've said that your writing attempts to fill in the, quote, blank spaces on the map to redraw a map that includes those neighborhoods and streets and cities whose people are not deemed to matter, whose voices do not make it into official recording, those made to play supporting when they are, in fact, the lead. I feel this so deeply. There are so many parallels between both of our hometowns, my hometown being Detroit. Your book is a telling of of what's missing. Yes. And, you know, it's a little unfair because, of course, none of these things are missing for the people who matter the most to me. Yes. Right. (laughs) In my own world. And that's precisely the tension and the thing I was writing toward. And I think, you know, our great Toni Morrison has said it time and time again, you know, I was simply recentering or centering the people mm-hmm. who matter the most to me because we matter to each other, right? We know mm-hmm. each other's names. And I, I, for me, I wanted to play around a little bit, you know, I wanted to show up as the Black woman cartographer and say, no, look here. And you know, what what I love so much about writing and what it allows you to do is it allows you to make these choices and to show the reader something and not the other thing. And I Mm -hmm. think for so long in American history, right, we've been, um, you know, that, that has been abused. Right. Yeah. And and we know how history gets retold and told, leaving out all the crucial details. And so for me, it was a moment to say, I'm not your tour guide. I'm not leading you here, but I'm going to tell you what matters to me, what I see and why it matters so much to me. You know, mm. and it, it just really pushed me, I think to think about what goes so wrong in the telling of Black people's stories, how Mm. we become the sum of our disasters, how we are not allowed to be anything more than that. 
in this moment, especially, I've been thinking so much about art and the power of art to, you know, all the people running out and consulting Black books. That's wonderful. But please don't forget to consult all of the art. Don't forget the novels. Don't forget the poems, right? Because that too has a life-changing power. What are some of your most prized memories of, of your home? Oh my God. It was a long, narrow house, right? Strangely built in a way. A, sh- a classic shotgun house, but we had a hump at the back, which made it a camelback. And so when my brothers were in the house, they were all upstairs with the boy smell and, you know, sometimes yeah. with girlfriends and with weights and polishing shoes. And it was like the livest place you'd ever want to be. So I mm. love to hang with them um, and sort of abandon my sisters who were downstairs. And I think the other memory that I love so much is the way my mother made the house, but then Mm. also made the house smell Mm. because she still is this immensely sort of sensual person, very interested in how things look and how food is presented and also this incredible cook. And, you know, there were times when she was making what seemed like the simplest of dishes, you know, sauerkraut and smoked sausage, Mm. but it was completely gourmet on the plate. And so just the memories of her sort of claiming this spot that was hers, you know, Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I love that. Isn't it? It's so interesting when we, um, the memories that we come to when we think about our favorite memories of home, they always yeah. come back to that sense of comfort and nurturing, whatever that space and place was for you. I think so. It's, it's, it's sort of visceral too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you must feel it too, but it's this sort of long after you're gone, it's like in the body, right? Yeah. This feeling that now the way you think about home is in the body, that it's yeah. not literal anymore. It's mm-hmm. this this sort of almost like a spiritual place. Mm. You moved to Harlem um, and were there during Hurricane Katrina and your family scattered for safety to places like Missouri and Mississippi and Alabama. Um, What experiences or voices do you feel or do you still feel get lost in the storytelling of New Orleans? I still feel like the story of New Orleans comes down to all of its sort of vices, so to speak. Maybe the great thing you always want when you love a place, and I do love New Orleans, is to be able to stay and make a life there. Yeah. And and I think what becomes so complicated is when you feel that you can't. The city is still very much shrouded in a kind of myth of itself. Even with my book, quite frankly, in certain ways, I, I think it's still hard for people to engage with some of the ideas I present there. Mm. About Say more. What do you mean? I think it's very hard to look at the city objectively and to say, 
okay, we're a very cool and great city. Those things are real. It's a historic and a very spiritual place as I see it. But to also be able to call out the dysfunction of it mm. and to be able to say, this is equally as real. Mm-hmm. And we, we have to somehow figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not going to change by magic. Yeah. And, and that's not so dissimilar from America, is it? The story of America for many uh, white people in particular. It's true. You know, when I think about Detroit, I think maybe some of the differences for me is that I think that the people of Detroit are trying to assert that we are beyond our dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the other way of putting it. New Orleans mm-hmm. has this history that people know and they gravitate to. And, and most often it is kind of the culture, the music, the food, those types of things mm-hmm. people connect to. Detroit sure. is all about saying like, we're asserting who we are beyond what you, what people have been telling you for, for generations and generations that we are. Sure. Sure. And in a way, I feel that way about America right now. It's what we're trying to assert is the thing that you're saying that like, hey, underneath all of this is this dysfunction, this racism that still lives with us in such a present way and really asserting that systemic racism is real, which a lot of people still find that hard to believe. I want to know, though, you have now created this life for yourself away from New Orleans do you feel in any way conflicted by not being of the place anymore? You know, I still feel very much of the place, but I know what you mean. So, you know, last year, right after I finished the the book, I bought this tiny little house in New Orleans. It's, it's a shotgun house. It's about 600 square feet and it happens to be yellow. It was completely unreasonable. It made no sense to be buying a house. But I got this little place. And and before COVID, I was going there once a month and just sort of hanging out and being with my family. And I think that is the one way that I feel grounded and connected there. But I do feel this great tension still between also just wanting to do as much as I can for the city but then also trying to make a life which contains the city but but isn't you know isn't sort of overcome by it alone because Harlem is a place that's real for me too Mm -hmm. you know yeah maybe it'll never go away that feeling that tension I think that in some way you have to understand and know how a place has has made you this yellow house and this experience that you experienced in New Orleans as a whole. And then also for me, Detroit and what is no longer. So, you know, Detroit Mm -hmm. is an interesting place. The elementary school, the high school, the church, all of those places that I grew up in are no longer. Those are, Mm -hmm. they're erased. When I go back, they're not a place that I can even visit anymore. But yet, I mean, I see it so clearly. And I wonder about the people, right? The people in those scenes we imagine in our minds. Because for me, that's so much a part of it. So much Mm -hmm. of my own longing, my own need to go back. It has to do with my childhood friends, has to do with, you know, my family. But, But 
I think for so long, even when I had only recently left and, and was in Texas doing my undergraduate, mm-hmm. I kept feeling immense guilt that I had somehow, quote, gotten out. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and actually thinking about it, this happened so much earlier. This happened from the moment I had to go a great distance to leave my house to go to high school, which was in a different, in a neighborhood that was different socioeconomically. And just the the traveling from mm. the place I knew most, the people I knew most, to this new place. It, and it felt utterly new, as if I had arrived on planet Mars. Just <laughs> the tension. I remember even in high school, yep. I started to feel that tension. How I think it was manifesting as shame in a mm-hmm. way. It was like, you know, when I was going to the Confederate name school up the street, I, everybody was sort of like me, you know? We, we had a sort of mutual understanding of each other. Mm-hmm. And the moment I had to cross, you know, all these sort of divides. Me too. Yep. I you know, know exactly. Yeah. It's such an old feeling. And I think then for me, because at a certain point, I lost all of my childhood friends. They yeah. were dead or in jail or in prison, you know? Hmm. So I think that then I felt guilt because I felt that I had somehow survived unfairly. Wow. How do you reconcile that? I mean, I, you really just blew my mind in thinking about how long maybe I've been thinking like this. Like you, I remembered the first journalism program I went to. I think I was about 14 years old. It was at the University of Michigan. And it felt like I traveled light years away <laughs> just to go to that program. You're right. And so that sense of guilt that comes from that as you gain more and more opportunity and you're pulled further and further away from home. How do you reconcile that? You know, maybe that's what the going back is for me. A Mm -hmm. way of saying, I haven't forgotten, I won't forget. You know, I love the tense changes there because it allows me to be both somewhere in the past, but also in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that matters more than anything on earth for me, Mm. that I return to the soil where I'm from Mm -hmm. and people know which name to call, Hmm. that people know which name to call me. Mm. And that, that is like, it's just the recognition, you know, and I, I, I keep mentioning Toni Morrison, but she's on my heart a lot today and Mm -hmm. has been for a while. I think because I'm reading this book, Conversations with Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she had all these names, you know. Uh, She was Chloe, you know. Like, there were names that, there was a name her sister called her that that we weren't calling her. And there were maybe names that friends of her, deep friends called her. 
And so maybe for me, it's all also wrapped up in who calls us what. Mm. Yeah. You've been speaking about this during our whole conversation, but your interests are in place and time and identity. And you've said that these spaces where we exist are our inheritance. I mean, they are distinct from where we feel we belong, which is our identity. Can you break this down further? Oh, there's a line I wrote in the book that I think summarizes it best, even in my own head. We own what belongs to us, whether we claim it or not. Mm. Mm. And so this idea that we come into the planet and we inherit an entire set of histories and geographies and ways of thinking and rituals and, 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 and it's old in us. But that is so very different from how, what we feel is ours really. And so like in the case, very practically speaking, of my mother's house, right? So we who understand the great value of saying, okay, I own something in this country and I know it's not a meritocracy and I know it can be taken any second from me, but it's my place that I get to make. The, the, the difficulty of sitting in that truth, of making a beautiful place, of being so vulnerable in that way. But then also knowing, right, as as it was with the case of my mother, that like somehow this thing doesn't represent me. It, mm. it makes me, it also brings feelings of shame. It also feels not like me. Right. It also, so I think in some way that thing you're talking about that I say is maybe what I'll be writing toward for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Because that feels like a geography, a certain place where you stand and where you sort of see from all angles. Mm. You know, for me, that's the difficulty of being who I am in this moment especially in this country. Yeah. I think it's where all of us are. Yes. What brings you joy during this time? Joy. Baths. I'm a big bath person. Um, Music. Music. All sorts of music. Yeah. Yeah. My partner and I have this great habit of reading aloud to each other, you know, and just hearing each other's voices and sort of engaging with something outside of us. That's also not the news, you know, I have my mind set on resisting the thievery, the absolute plunder of my joy in this particular moment, because Mm. I think for all of us who are Black people who have been called to try to absolve others of their shame and guilt, it has just felt like battle, just trying to fight to not have 
my joy stolen, literally, by yeah. someone who needs me to become somehow morose. So I feel like I'm on guard now. I'm just like, yeah. nope, nope, yeah. nope. To the to the point where I I just I'm what it's like I'm watching at a distance because the need for self protection feels so great. Mm. Oh, Sarah, you and I are are on the same plane with that. Where, yeah, for my own self preservation, I've had to disconnect from the need for me to be in conversations in spaces with white people who need to talk this out. Sure, and I say. You guys can talk it out amongst yourselves. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I think I think thinking about, there was this line I read, and maybe I can read it to you. It was in this book, this collection of letters between Audre Lorde and, and Pat Parker, you know? Mm. So Pat Parker's going through so much, and Audre Lorde writes to her, whatever I have or know that is useful to you is yours. Most of all, to hear from you when you speak and believe you when you are silent. And I sent that to every Mm. person who was asking me to just say, speak, tell Mm. me, explain. Mm. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? It is. Sarah, thank you so much for this conversation. This was really beautiful. Thank you. That's author Sarah M. Broom. Her memoir, The Yellow House, won the National Book Award last year, and it's just been released in paperback. Before we ended our conversation, I asked my friends Sarah and Kelly what they tell their kids about where we grew up. And like Sarah M. Broom's words, what they said made me think that really... We're kind of all apart, but in this together. It was so crazy time. My kids were talking about the ghetto. I guess they heard a song. And then my son asked me, so mom, is Detroit the ghetto? You know, that was a really interesting. And so I actually at that time I had to sit down. I had to kind of give them a definition of what that meant. Um, and we talked about really wealth and poverty and things like that. When when my kids think we were talking about love and, you know, and family. And that's when I told them to give me some definitions of what they thought that was. And they would always say, well, when we go home and we're around family and our holidays and, you know, we eat together. Those are the memories that they have, you know. So and that's what I want for them. What about you, Sarah? Well, you know, I'll say this. As far as they understand it, Detroit is just where, you know, Granny and Pop Pop live and you know, their aunts and uncles. So they love it. They absolutely, my son's always like, whenever he sees me going anywhere without him, he assumes I'm going to the airport and leaving him so I can go to Detroit. Um, But no, so, and he's always trying to go to Detroit. So in their mind, it's this magical place. And I like to leave it that way for a while. (laughs) Well, it is a magical place. It is. It is a magical place. It It is. is. What does home mean for you? What does community mean for you? And how are you creating this in this COVID-19 world? Email us at truthbetold at kqed.org or leave a voicemail at 415-553-2802. 
Truth Be Told is produced by Susie Racho, Issa Mendoza, and Katie McMurrin. KQED's leadership team includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. A big thanks to Kiana Mogadam and the good people at NPR West. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley. 